Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR-161-BZ-142, a federal police force, from the Easy Chair, excellent colloquies on various subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 252, October the 1st, 1991. Douglas Murray, Otto Scott, and I are going to discuss now the subject of a federal police force. And I'm going to ask Otto to introduce this all-important subject. Thank you, Rush. Well, there is a bill pending in Congress and apparently has been a source of back-and-forth debate between the White House and Congress for some time now, several months, maybe even a year or more, about doing something about the crime situation in the United States. Uh, I understand that there are over 50 crimes which are going to be defined as capital crimes, calling for execution. And they will involve, and I have not seen a list of them, and I don't think one has been published, but I understand that they will involve the expansion of federal authority over criminal law in the states. And in order to do this, they are going to federalize a number of laws. One senator, for instance, wants to federalize any crime that is committed with a gun that could be connected with interstate traffic and by such technicalities expand the administration of criminal law to the federal government. And in order to enforce this as part of the enforcement, to set up a federal police force which will be differently trained than local police forces. They will get courses in psychology, they will get a higher academic background, and so forth, and they will be trained especially to serve as federal police. Now, we have lots of police in the United States. We have county police, we have city police, we have state police, we have a fair number of individuals in the enforcement of the law. Generally speaking, what we do have is an increase in crime, which is generally uh, part of a weakening of authority. If Congress enacts the particular law that I've seen references to, we will be confronted with much more authority and many more policemen of a different caliber than we have today. And I think it would be good to discuss how the law is enforced today and what the law consists of today because this is becoming a very, very important topic in everyday life. Yes, uh, Douglas, you've had a background in law enforcement. Would you like to comment on this matter of a federal police force? Well, there's one development that took place rather quietly about 15 years ago, and it had a, a local effect here and elsewhere, as well as elsewhere in the country, and that's that the U.S. Department of the Interior 
formed a, a police force specifically to forcibly, if necessary, remove and destroy any uh, property or individuals from government land. And in Tuolumne County, just to the south of us, a woman who was in her 80s, whose husband had filed a mining claim legally on government land, they were way back in the wilderness, weren't bothering anybody, he died, she was living on in the cabin uh, that they built together, they had a legal mining claim in force because she wasn't the one who filed it. This uh, uh, police force uh, from the interior went out there, dragged her out of the house, did not allow her to take any personal possessions or belongings out of the house, held her down physically, although she, she fought him, and they burned the building to the ground and then escorted her off of the the public land. And this same uh, type of thing was repeated against another prospector on another mining claim in Tuolumne County, and it never made the national press. It was reported by the Sonora Union Democrat and a few of the garbage can liner papers in the area, but uh, it was not reported in the national press. In fact, the, the very fact of the origination of this police force for this particular function was never reported. It took place very quietly. That reminds me of something I'd forgotten about. When I was on the Indian Reservation in the 40s and into the early 50s, at that time in the Intermountain Country, in the high country, uh, there were log cabins built by the Forest Service that were three-sided. Uh, one wall was missing, uh, but they had uh, a place for a fireplace uh, so you could cook, uh, have some heat, and these were for hunters who were caught in a storm, who took refuge in these uh, cabins, and experienced hunters knew where there was one. And in the particular area where this was done, there were frequently quick storms that moved in, and before you knew it, you had uh, a tremendous amount of snow that fell. I know I was caught in one that deposited perhaps two to three feet of snow within an hour. It, it was just uh, impossible to see. But they went up into the woods and burned down all these cabins systematically. So that uh, this type of policy has been uh, underway a good many years. And one purpose of it has been to close off vast areas of national forests to people. Because it does make it uh, dangerous in some areas for a hunter to hunt. He no longer has a protection especially where it takes him 
a day to get up into the high country. Well, my oldest son has been doing some hiking and climbing recently, and uh, he told me that the Sierra Club has a stone lodge about the 8,000-foot level on uh, Mount Shasta, and it's supposed to be for skiers or hikers who get lost in case of a blizzard, as you mentioned. There's a sign now that they can no longer use it for Hmm. that purpose. What? Why is it still there? I guess it's for the Sierra Club. If you make arrangements with the Sierra Club, you can stay there. But if you're caught out, why you can't go in there? Well, the drug enforcement laws are something that I recently looked at. They began in 1970. And they... Their first stage was to confiscate the assets of anyone convicted of violating the drug laws. And that meant everything, all assets, whether the man had a wife and children or not. So in effect, it would beggar an entire family. Now this in my opinion, is a violation of the Fifth Amendment takings clause against unreasonable searches and seizures because most of those drug laws had specific penalties, statutory penalties. If you were found with this, you got so many years and so forth, or a spread of years or whatnot. To then go and, or a fine, but to seize all the assets an individual had seemed to me cruel and unusual punishment. But at any rate, the laws were enacted. They were applied. And there was no outcry against them. I didn't recall seeing any editorials much about it. They began to expand the laws. The first expansion that I noticed was a couple of years back, and I was a little late in getting around to it, was to tell the attorneys, the defense attorneys for these drug people, that they would have to sequester their fees. And if the individual was convicted, the fee would have to be turned over as part of his assets. Well, you know, the trial attorneys didn't like that one little bit. So they made quite a fuss about that. And I don't know where that particular uh, codicil of the law stands at this point. But they expanded beyond that, so that by 1984, they began to seize assets without a drug charge and without a conviction, just seizing the assets Mm -hmm. under the uh, rubric that these were assets that were somehow acquired in drug traffic without even an arrest. They just simply came and seized the assets. Boats, planes, automobiles, homes, bank accounts, and so forth. And that proceeded without any public outcry and without the courts or anyone else paying too much attention. So now we move forward to 1989, 1990, 1991. By this time, these methods have been broadened to be applied not only against people who are suspected of being involved in drug traffic, but those involved in fraud, in gambling, 
in bringing tainted meat into the country or carrying liquor into an Indian territory. Now, part of the argument for this particular application of the law has been that they need this money both to conquer the drug war, win the drug war, and they need the assets to proceed with the drug war so that the assets are become property of the police, not simply the federal police, but the state police and even local police can apply these laws. And I read recently of two cases, which I'll cite if you don't mind. One was a big black man who, Burley, was in the airport going from Nashville, Tennessee to Houston, Texas, and he was paying his ticket in cash. So following the instructions, the ticket agent informed the police that a person filling the profile, fitting the profile of a drug dealer was there. And the police came and took him and searched him and found $9,600 on him and took it and gave him a receipt. Now, he turned out to be a man in the nursery business who was going down to Houston to buy some flowers and shrubs, and it was a family business. He still hasn't got his money back. Mm -hmm. The next case I ran across, and I was just reading this series in the Examiner, was of a man 53 years old who was driving his wife, his two grown children, and a couple of grandchildren through a small town in Georgia who made a wrong turn and who was stopped by the police. The police asked him if they had, if he gave permission to search his car, and he did. They emptied the suitcases, some jewelry, and they found ten lottery tickets from this Florida lottery. They took them all to the station house and held them for six hours. They also found $2,300, and they confiscated all the suitcases, the jewelry, the money, and the lottery tickets on the uh, charge of uh, gambling paraphernalia and possible drugs. They found a stick, a white stick of something. They showed it to him. They said it was cocaine. He didn't know. He'd never seen cocaine. So then they were allowed to go, They're leaving their property behind. It took him 11 months, his lawyer 11 months, to get the laboratory in Georgia to give them an analysis of the white stick. It turned out to be bubble gum. And it was 11 months before the court finally ordered the police in this small town, named Fitzgerald, by the way, that sticks in my mind, my grandmother's maiden name, Fitzgerald, Georgia, for the police in Fitzgerald, Georgia, to give the poor man back his money. Now, that, of course, didn't count the expense of the legal actions. Now, here we have something very serious. We have American citizens stopped and searched and their property seized without a charge. This, the Constitution tells us, cannot be done. Mm -hmm. But there are now on the books... 84 different laws enacted by Congress which allow the authorities to do that. So you can imagine with the expansion of the federal crime law that they're cooking up, what we're looking at. Well, I think that was changed by the Burger Court because when I was a police officer, you could not uh, order somebody to open the trunk of their car, for instance. 
uh, now if you have if you see something inside the car that leads you to believe that there may be something in the trunk of the car then the driver of that car has no choice he must open the trunk of the car but before unless you could see it in plain view it didn't exist and I think the Burger Court is the one that changed that. So now it's a fishing expedition. They can go anywhere they want to. Well, it's worse than that. It means that they can always find whatever you've got. Yes. Exactly. Well, when this country was started, law enforcement was in the hands of local constables and justices of the peace. The justice of the peace was not a lawyer. You did not need a lawyer to go before a justice of the peace. He was a man who had a good reputation locally and knew his Bible. And he tried a case in terms of general Christian biblical legal premises, equity. Now, that was how, until our childhood in most of the country, not the cities, law was handled True. by a justice of the peace and a local constable. Mm -hmm. But uh, the justices of the peace were dispensed with. They were not lawyers, and somehow the excellent law enforcement they had provided for generations was no longer valid. And the constable gave way to uh, trained police who were tied in with other uh, police groups. Every country in history that has had a centralized police force has wound up a tyranny. It has had a KGB or a Gestapo. And that's exactly where we are headed now. And this is why we have the confiscations we do. If you should have a passenger in your car who has a couple of marijuana cigarettes in his pocket, unbeknownst to you, you can lose your car. Yes, on the spot. On the spot. Now, I read in Reason magazine mm -hmm. that the police in Stockton have, uh, as many cities do, they have this unofficial red light district, which is a pain, and women walking around with motorists coming, stopping, and so forth. And they have police decoys. And the police decoys are bugging or taping the possible transaction with men in the car. Now the police in Stockton are confiscating the car. Mm -hmm. They're not taking the fellow into arrest. They're just taking the car. That's they've taken over profitable. Yes. They've taken over a thousand automobiles. Mm -hmm. Now the actual offense on the books is a misdemeanor, which according to Stockton police costs two hundred and fifty dollars at the most. So here is a punishment greatly in excess of the offense. Mm -hmm. And then we compare that with confiscations without an offense. Now, you have to go back roughly 475 years in English history to find a comparable 
set of circumstances. In Trevelyan, he describes how an alehouse, he said, which is of no interest to anybody except the publican and his wife who brew the beer themselves and sell it. They can be closed down, he said, coldly and cruelly, without any proceeding whatever. And it was one of the part of the proceedings, part of the life of England in those days, the suppression of the life of the common people, mm-hmm. which led to the revolution. Yes. Now, we've gone all the way back to that. Yes. Well, there's another, you know, talking about this national police force, uh, I'm confused about where the federal government uh, finds the constitutional authority to come into the state of California, for instance, and prosecute elected state officials and, in effect, nullify an election of the people in the state. What, what happened to the state's rights part of the Constitution? State's rights were wiped out with the second Reconstruction. They were wiped out by the first Reconstruction, as you know, for a period of, what, something like 12 years or so, when the South was occupied and when the federal government mandated the rules of its elections. The second Reconstruction, which began under the Kennedy, wiped out the right of the southern states to set up the rules for an election. And under Johnson, the rights of each state to educate its system, its children, was pretty well wiped out by a system of of, uh, pressure and bribery. So you have the federal government now with federal funds in everything, in highway construction, schools construction, in election districts. The redistricting, which is going on now, is being supervised by a special committee in Washington, D.C., which is telling each state that it has to approve of the redistricting plan before they can conduct it. So the federal police merely (coughs) following where everybody else has been. The Constitution, contrary to what a lot of Americans and especially Christian Americans believe is a dead letter. It has absolutely no meaning. It means what the courts want to make of it. It's a pretext. The Constitution says that the federal government can own no land in the states except military bases and post offices. Very clear English. Very clear. And yet in some states, 90% of the land is federal land. Well, Wyoming, for instance. Or Alaska. Alaska, uh, particularly. And California, it's over 40%. Nevada. And most of the western states. Now, you see, all the land in the United States, originally, was open to the people. Once the people had populated to a sufficient extent after our federal union was uh, organized, they could then create a local state government and they would be recognized as another state in the union and they would send in representatives and senators and so forth. All the land in that state was open to be settled. Now suddenly, somewhere along the line, we have states that all the land is not open to be settled. At what time did that transition take place? Yes, and now your own land. If you uh, drain an area which has been uh, a dump, 
and because there's a little bit of water uh, uh, sitting there in it, and it's been a mosquito uh, breeding place, it's wetlands that you've drained and you go to prison. People have done that. They yes. Have, and they have gone to prison for it. Well, the Fifth Amendment has got, as you know, two parts. first part is that you... Uh, have the right not to be not to self-incriminate yourself, and the second part is that you are to be safe in your person from search, unreasonable searches and seizures. Now we just got through with the searches and seizures mm -hmm. thing. Let's go back to the Fifth Amendment, as most people understand it: the right to remain silent. If you actually use that right in an official situation, you are limited to giving your name. If you answer any question beyond your name, you have given up the right. Now, Webster says an inalienable right is a right that cannot be surrendered or taken away or transferred. But the lawyers and the courts have decided that you've surrendered your right against self-incrimination if you answer any question. And, of course, they'll goad you with all sorts of questions. The other part is that when they found out that Gangsters like Costello, you remember the Trafalgar mm -hmm. hearings where they had Costello on the stand, ask him if he was a murderer, if he'd ever stolen things, and all kinds of things. And, of course, he refused to answer on advice of counsel or the Fifth mm -hmm. Amendment that might incriminate or degrade him. They decided they had to do something about this Fifth Amendment. So they set up a system of offering immunity. Now, immunity is a means of forcing a man to testify because the immunity means that you're not going to be prosecuted for what you admit. Of course, you can be disgraced. You can be ruined in your community. Your reputation is, is finished. And that would, I think, come under the category of cruel and unusual punishment in a civilized society. But we don't recognize that as a penalty. Now, with Lieutenant uh, Colonel Oliver North, they went even further. They offered limited immunity, and I said at the time, limited to what? How limited? Well, of course, in any event, limited immunity, he was forced to testify against himself and against his will, and then he was prosecuted for what he admitted. Mm -hmm. And the federal judge took the case. It took the appeals court years later to say the case could not have been taken. So, Colonel North, after all these years and all that money and all this fuss and all the money, is finally getting his pension. And, of course, there are still millions of people who are going around calling him a scoundrel mm -hmm. and so forth. I mean, he's paid a heavy penalty, and so has his wife and children and his relatives. Yeah. Don't you think that's the game? Of course that's the game. Make him pay a heavy penalty. Yes, but the game is also to destroy the Fifth Amendment. Mm -hmm. There's very little left. There's only a fragment of it left. Now, the Fifth Amendment was established 450 years. Well, it was laid. The basis for it was laid by the Cromwellian Revolution, and when 
the founding generation in this country, the founding fathers, were descended from men who had lived through that. This country was founded by refugees from that sort of a system. The Bible does not permit uh, torture nor confessions. And if a man confesses to a crime, there has to be full corroboration before there can be anything done to him. Three witnesses. Yes. Well, we've gone a long way since the Constitution was written, and now, of course, it means nothing. So we are moving into a federal police force, which will destroy all our freedoms. I recall very vividly one man with high federal law enforcement connections who once told me, he said, uh, I want to tell you something because it's people like yourselves who are fools when they are tackled by any federal official. You're so obviously confident of your innocence. And he said, act like a Capone, say nothing. And he said, under no circumstances take a lie detector test. Because he said, you will be asked questions about your personal life have you cheated on your wife? Have you thought about cheating? Uh, have you done this and that? Uh, what kind of thoughts have you had about your employer that will so throw you off that you are an emotional mess? So he said, under no circumstances allow them to do this to you. Good advice. Yes. And it was because he had seen it done that he was so vocal about it. Well, I think that Christian schools and homeschoolers are going to have to redouble their efforts to teach history and teach this next generation coming up the price that's been paid. Yes. I have a copy of the Constitution which stands about uh, 15 inches high and is about 3 inches thick. And I have a supplement to it also, which is quite heavy. It is a copy of the Constitution published by the Government Printing Office every few years. And for every clause, it has uh, annotations of all the Supreme Court cases which have, in effect, rewritten that particular phrase. So that from the preamble to the last word, you have all these decisions citing key aspects of, uh, thereof. And the thing that comes through loud and clear is that in the hands of the courts, 
from the very beginning the Constitution has been rewritten. The meaning often turned upside down so that when you and I read the simple words of the Constitution there is scarcely anything that has not been given a radically different interpretation by the courts. So that uh, this edition is put out for the benefit of lawyers. And uh, the supplements are continuous. And it gives you an idea of how uh, little the original text means. It's like having the Bible and then having ten books which tells you what the Bible really didn't say as for example right now uh, there are some uh, writers who are busily telling us that the Bible nowhere condemns homosexuality and uh, there's a whole school of them here and in England and no doubt on the continent who go through all kinds of contortions to make the Greek words and the Hebrew words mean something other than they mean. Well, uh, we are without law. Well, this is not a very esoteric conversation in a way because I've held out one of the copies of the Wall Street Journal this Sunday from you I kept the Thursday edition of last week I forgot the date on it offhand but there's a, a, an article in there by uh, L. Gordon Krovitz who is writing uh, Living Under the Law essays in the Wall Street Journal and he has some excerpts from the Clarence Thomas hearings very interesting. Senator Biden, who, is, uh, <laughs> who, as you know, wrote Hamlet and other things. Uh, Senator Biden questioning Judge Thomas mentioned two uh, legal scholars, one from Harvard, one from the University of Chicago, who had questioned the constitutionality of some of these new laws, that is, some of the laws, for instance, that I'm talking about, and who are demanding better protection for people's property and business. And Senator Biden accused Judge Thomas of admiring these scholars and asked him why he admired them. And Thomas said he Thomas got rather personal about it. He said that uh, these kind of laws made him think of the Black Code, which kept his grandfather from getting licenses to earn a living. And he felt, in effect, that one's labor is part of one's property and that things that interfere with one's labor interfere with one's property. And Biden then went on to bring up a court case, and the case was the Supreme Court upholding the constitutionality of an independent prosecutor. Now, Judge Scalia wrote a dissent on that in which he said, the Constitution only calls for three branches of government. It doesn't call for any official that is independent of all three branches of government. 
And Biden, who rushes in where angels fear to tread, then brought up another very significant case. He said, if we had another Scalia on the court, that would have gone the other way. And he said that would mean that uh, independent agencies might be brought up on a constitutional level. Now, what he's talking about there is the fourth branch of government. For Congress to create an agency that can adjudicate and enact and administrate all at once, do what all three branches are forbidden to do, is obviously unconstitutional, but the Supreme Court has allowed this to go on. Now, if we have, he was saying, in effect, if we, if Thomas is going to join Scalia, he said, we don't know how the government will operate. So, in other words, what men have done, men can undo. We do have a very interesting government in the sense that there are all sorts of powers available which the people have not been taught about and don't know how to use. At the end of this essay that I was writing, I looked for that uh, quote from Thomas Jefferson who said, don't tell me what did he say? Don't do not speak to me about the goodwill of men. Bind them, bind them, I say, with the chains of the Constitution. And in seven of the books that I have in my library of that period, I couldn't find a single one that carried that quote. Mm -hmm. They were all modern books. Mm -hmm. Otto, I think uh, it would be very important for you to uh, cite something we discussed earlier today, Pat Buchanan's oh, essay yes. Yes. and the response to it. Marvelous. He, he put out a political statement called America First. Now, Pat Buchanan has made a great career, and he's a great writer. He's made a great career of commenting on politics and commenting on other political people. This is the first time I know in his history that he's put out a political statement of his own beliefs and what we should do. He believes that we should stop this international do-goodism at the expense of our own country. We should bring our troops home. We should concentrate on restoring our country. End all foreign aid and end all this business of protecting the world and being the policeman of the world and so forth. I believe that he's done this in conjunction. I can't prove it. Uh, I haven't called Howie Phillips, but you know Howie has a third-party movement. And I think that Howie now has the best publicist in the United States because America First has been Howie's platform. Mm -hmm. And I think that the things we've been talking about can be corrected. Well, I think the temper of the, com the country is beginning to run in that direction. Recent polls... Uh, people are fed up with the foreign aid. They're fed up with foreign aid. They're also fed up with all the rest of this thing that we've been talking about. How do you suppose most of those confiscations, by the way, have been of small people? Yes. There's no big money involved in most of them. There's no. A large percentage of them are nickel and dime. No. Big, the big people have got lawyers. The big people are protected. It's reached the point where I... I'm almost ready to favor the legalization of drugs for this reason. Virtually every piece of paper currency in the United States has passed through the hands of drug dealers at some point. 
and it is possible to detect traces of drugs on them. So that a fine analysis or a dog who's sniffing out can prove that you are trafficking in drugs because any money we have in our pocket, any paper money, is likely to have traces of drugs on it. I don't know if it was in Mark Skousen's paper or where I read it, but uh, one of the defensive things that you can do in this regard is when you go into a bank to cash a check, you ask the teller for new money. You don't want money that's out of the drawer. You want brand new money from the mint. They used to wash the, the bills. Yes, no more. They're letting them get old and faded, I notice. Well, it is a serious matter if you can be arrested because of the currency you have in your wallet. Well, you know, the dogs are drug addicted, and that's the reason that they go smelling for drugs. No, I'm not. They feed the dog drugs, so the dog is looking for drugs every, everywhere he goes. Amazing. I did not know that, but you can see how logical it is. That's how they train the dog. Sure. Hmm. It's bad enough that our youth are druggies. Now we've got to make dogs yes. uh, addicts. Boy, wait till the uh, animal rights people get a load of that. <laughs> yes. But I think you better write something about that. <laughs> yes, I don't write something on yeah. that. But you know, I, I don't believe there are ten people in the country who know that. Well, it just it's occurred obvious. To, it just occurred to me to mention it. Yes. At any rate, the e even if it's not true, it oh, it is true. Andy rumor. <laughs> no, I can, I can assure you it's true. But you know, the confiscations extend to gambling. And imagine, if you have a pint of whiskey in your pocket, I can't know of anyone nowadays who does, but I remember Prohibition, so do you. Yes. And uh, they were breaking down doors then. They were seizing stills, and they were uh, sending men to the penitentiary. Poor farmers in South Carolina who were making a little corn liquor mm -hmm. went, to the, went to the penitentiary, and Prohibition was a heavy hand. Yes. And then they, they had gang wars, it had corruption, they had a black market. That's where our black market began. Well, now, of course, the black market is much larger. So I wouldn't go for legalizing drugs, but I would go for a third party to change this kind of government. Well, Otto, the next time I come over, if that great big German shepherd of yours sniffs at my wallet, I will know what you're feeding him. <laughs> well, poor Max is a very innocent dog. <laughs> he does not have an innocent look. <laughs> he has an intimidating look. The, the vet said, I wouldn't want to call his bluff. <laughs> all a favor by uh, writing his monthly letter on the subject of America first. We cannot destroy this country trying to save the world. And there is no way that dollars can save the world. They didn't save us. No. 
there was uh, an excellent and uh, cynical monograph written after World War II by, of all people, a socialist, Reinhold Niebuhr. Hmm. And the title of it was, Could Dollars Save the World? And he made it clear that it was a ridiculous opinion. Well, countries that get addicted to American help are injuring themselves. Mm -hmm. They have to take care of themselves. I think this is part of the things that's happened to the black people in the United States. And to black Africa. And to black Africa. And to Israel. Yes. And to, of all places, the Soviet Union looking for the United States yes. as a savior. Everybody, countries and individuals have to go through lean times and they have to get up on their own feet and they have to work their way out of it. And these are tests of God. Yes which are determined to bring out the best in you. I mean, I read a very brief article not too long ago about the business of death, where some individuals were deploring the deaths of children. And the writer went on to say that in the earlier days of Christianity, children died, as well as other people. But it was never considered part of Christianity to say that God should not take a child. It, they, that had nothing to do with the faith. Because we're not in a world which is to be all summer. Of all things in the Odyssey, when Odysseus was offered immortality by one of the uh, goddesses, that he had an affair with, he turned it down because he said, I would rather be a man with all the troubles involved than lead the pointless life of immortality on earth. Well, Otto, you said that these things are sent by the Lord to try us, and I'm sure you're right. But if the Lord sent us Bush to try us, I'm flunking where he's concerned. <laughs> President Shrub, somebody called him. <laughs> I think he's incoherent right now. <laughs> well, Douglas, you've been silent for a while. Well, it's uh, interesting. The all of these various groups like the animal rights people and homosexuals and so forth debate is no longer possible with them everything is uh, confrontational and logic is impossible with them and uh, it seems to be getting to a boiling point this latest thing in Sacramento where public officials can no longer address the public, Wilson today, was booed loudly uh, his entire speech, 15 or 20 minutes, at Stanford University. Uh, you mentioned earlier that the former police chief in San Francisco, uh, Jordan, uh, had to ran for three blocks and was beaten in that entire uh, distance before he was able to get in the car and get away. And I heard his statements today that he felt that the there were no police present 
and he felt that the police were ordered to stay out of the area. I'm sure he's right. I'm sure that Mayor Agnos would have done that. And ironically, the paper yesterday claimed that San Francisco was the number one city in the world, or at least in the United States, as far as the desire of people to visit was concerned. Uh, I don't know where they got those statistics. They make them up. Some things yeah. are for sale, and that's one of them. They make them up. Yeah. Uh, this is the oldest game in the, in the newspaper business and in politics. They make it up as they go, and who's going to get jump up and say you're wrong? Well, they were certainly congratulating themselves in San Francisco and declaring, of course, we're number one. Well, the abusive types will get what the only thing that people always find when they look for it is trouble. Mm -hmm. There's lots of trouble in the world. And uh, we have groups in the United States that have forgotten that there is such a thing as a majority. We've heard so much about minorities all our lives and the rights of minorities and the virtues of minorities that we've forgotten that there is such a thing as a majority in every yeah. culture and that the majority of a culture has rights in that culture. Some years ago, the Bird Society had a slogan, Support Your Local Police. I think it needs reviving again because if we don't, before long, we won't have any local police, just a federal police. Well, look at how a federal police would operate. They don't know you. They have authority from far away. At least the local police knew, know who you are. They know you're a resident. They know your background. They know how you live. They'll treat you accordingly. They have nothing against you. They know who's bad in the community and who's mm -hmm. good and so forth. What does an outside federal force with super authority over everybody know about you and yes. don't care? Well, for example, here we have uh, some of the local and county sheriff's men uh, whom we know on a first-name basis, some of whose children attend our Christian school, that's a, a world away from somebody from, uh, from Washington who has nothing but contempt for the hicks he has to deal with. Well, so far in recent years, people in authority in the United States have not behaved well. No. They're not courteous. They don't listen. They don't have respect. And uh, we're becoming a nation of rules. I was very upset to have a German tell me that we called you, he said, the people of the rule. When uh, American tourists come in, come around, he said, they want to know, what's the rule here? And then he said, they know how to behave. And I didn't like to hear that. Uh, we used to be a little more uh, natural than that, not quite as conformist. And, of course, you have things like Running, uh, setting up a gauntlet for uh, former police chief Jordan to run through the <coughs> Castro district of San Francisco. That's what I heard on the air. 
and nobody punished. Well, of course, punishment delayed doesn't mean that punishment never comes. No. It just means delayed. And we are assured that there is not a jot nor a tittle that God is not aware of and finally renders a reckoning on. Well, one of the better things about getting old is that you see the end of the chapter. Most of my hard-drinking friends died in their early 50s. And I've seen the end of the chapter of a number of careers which did not end the way the individual anticipated. Mm-hmm. And that's true of human events overall. Yes. Uh, it would be a real mistake to take the, uh, the disgraceful abuse of our Constitution as a permanent state of affairs or as a hopeless state of affairs. The generations change things. We have a generation coming up. Mr. Bush, if he is reelected, will be the last World War II man in the presidency. There's a whole new generation coming up, and not just the generation now in their 40s and 50s, but a generation behind that in their 20s and 30s. Of whom I take much more, I take much more a look at in the 20s mm-hmm. and 30s group, because they're growing up in the world that the liberals made, and they know all its faults, and I don't believe they're going to leave it alone. Oh, I agree with you. I think with more and more of the Christian school products growing up, marrying having their own children, we're going to get a different type of citizen here in the United States. And as of now, 40% of the children of this country are in Christian schools. Now that means the future. They're not the children who are going to grow up and die of drug overdoses or of AIDS or of any of the number of things that are killing off our youth. Well, I don't even think the percentages are the main point. The main point is the, if, for instance, we have a third party, it's a small party, but it's an intellectual party, and it's sound, and it knows the arguments, it will be the refuge for everybody when the pressure comes, and it will expand immediately. And as far as numbers is concerned, I always considered if I ran into a good man in any kind of a meeting, that it was a great day. Well, I think your point is exceptionally well taken with regard to numbers. Historians have estimated that when the War of Independence broke out, one-third were Tories, one-third didn't care. One-third were for independence. And only a small handful felt it was worth fighting for. But that handful prevailed. Sure. And I recall years ago reading in one historical study on the Puritans and Cromwell and the Commonwealth that it, the Puritans were actually... 4% of the population. 
most of the population wasn't involved and didn't care. But 4% commanded the country because they meant business. Well, you know, most people are always waiting for somebody else to do something. Mm-hmm. In fact, it seems a cliche. They say somebody ought to do something about that. Yeah. <laughs> well, young families are going to have to start fighting for some things. Uh, one of the things they're going to have to fi start fighting for is uh, better tax breaks uh, yes. for, uh, for young families because it's tougher and tougher. Uh, these two two-income families, which leave the kids as latchkey kids, you know, has destroyed a whole generation. And uh, I would think that people would react by now seeing politicians raising their salaries to astronomical heights and the tax break uh, for uh, the deduction for, for uh, children has not, hasn't changed. No, they don't see the need for that. No. But it's got to, it ought to start clicking in somebody's mm -hmm. minds before long. That's a very good point. Well, look at the many young couples that have visited us of late at our Sunday services from all over Northern California. All of them homeschooling or in some cases children in Christian schools. And they all represent a totally different generation, a totally different outlook. So that the elements of the future are there. And uh, they do mean business about their faith. We find that it is uh, young couples like that who are having trouble making every uh, penny count who are among the most generous contributors we have because they mean business about the future. And so they put their money where their mouth is. Well, our time is nearly over. Is there a last comment you'd like to make, Douglas, Otto? Douglas, do you want to say anything? Well, I just uh, I think that uh, uh, one of the great joys for me is looking in the faces of the children at the Chalcedon Christian School and other Christian schools. There's a joy in their face that is such a remarkable change from looking yes. at the faces of kids in public schools uh, who have no hope, no faith in the future, don't know where they're going, and, and really don't care if they get anywhere. Yes. And the kids in the Christian schools have just a joy of living and a faith in the future that's just a delight to see. Well, they'll change the world. Yes. Well, it is interesting, Douglas, that uh, my grandson Isaac, Mark's son, at the uh, uh, farm boys, I forget the name of it. Uh, Future Farmers of America? No, it's not the Future. 4-H? 4-H, yes. Very often he has to read the uh, instructions because the other students are not able to understand and read. So things are handed to Isaac to read. That's sad. <laughs> yes. Well, our time is...
authorized by the Calcedon Foundation, archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library, digitized by Christrules.com.